This is Reimagining Higher Education, your go-to podcast with remarkable education leaders sharing personal stories from their experience in and around the sector, including reflection and evidence for progress in the sector. With your host, Professor Judith Sachs, former PVC Learning and Teaching at the University of Sydney, Deputy Vice-Chancellor and Provost at Macquarie University, and Special Advisor in Higher Education at KPMG, and now Chief Academic Officer at Studiosity. Welcome. I'd uh, like to welcome um, Professor John Dewar uh, to today's podcast. Uh, John and I have worked together as joint, uh, as Deputy Vice-Chancellors. He then moved on to being a Vice-Chancellor and I moved on to having a life. So John, thanks for making time uh, to to talk to me today. Before we start, um, Studiosity acknowledges the traditional Indigenous custodians of country throughout Australia and all lands where we work and recognises their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to elders past and present. So John, in when I asked you to do this, I also asked you to bring an object uh, that represented both um, your uh, journey as a leader, but also um, the things that have helped you um, in, to, in, in your role as a, as a leader and as a, a successful learner and academic. I'm also going to ask you later on is um, I'm going to get you to think about how you would reimagine a university, but let's start off with your uh, your object. It's a pen. <laughs> shall, I explain, shall I explain, Judith, why Please. I brought the pen with me? Um, so when I, I, I first started in academic life in, in 1981, which you know, it's just over forty years ago. It feels like a lifetime away. Um, and then everything was done with a pen or a pencil, or you know, writing physically on a page was the way I and most other people did things. Um, whether it was, uh, I don't know, setting exams, marking essays, preparing lecture notes or tutorial notes. Um, or even writing academic publications, it was it all started with pen and paper. I mean, it's bizarre to think of it now. Um, and writing has always been a vital part of my life as an academic and as a teacher as well as an administrator. I'm an inveterate note taker. If if I if I don't make a written note of something, it kind of disappears from my head very quickly. Um, so for me, the, the physical act of writing um, has always been a, a constant um, over, over a 40-year period. Of course, I, I do a lot more now using various forms of technology. And in fact, this pen um, is actually an e-ink reader pen um, so that I can still take handwritten notes, but I, I have a digital filing system now so that I can find them um much more easily than would otherwise be the case and can you read them um yes i i i think my handwriting is still just about legible um <laughs> but um but for me it's it kind of exemplifies just the scale of the change we've seen in higher education over certainly my time in it the, the 40 years i've been in it um i mean just ex- astonishing change not just in technology um but in scale i mean you know universities even back in the early 80s were still pretty elite 
institutions, um, only you know a small proportion of the population could expect to go there. But now um, it's almost an expectation for the majority of the population, certainly for the majority of women. Um, a young woman nowadays leaving school is much more likely to go to university than not. Um, it's just a, a such a transformation, and I sometimes wonder whether we sufficiently understand the impact or the implications of that transformation, um, not just for the wider community, but for for the universities themselves. Have we sufficiently absorbed that the scale of what's happened um, and reoriented ourselves accordingly? So, so this humble pen. Um, which has been a constant in my life for the last 40 years, but which is now um, a part of a quite sophisticated piece of technology, I think quite nicely exemplifies um, my, you know, my, my life as an academic, if you like, and as an educator. So can you talk to us about your experience as a student? What, what was your undergraduate and your postgraduate degree like? And uh, what, what, what do you um, think was positive about it? And reflecting on it, where could it have been improved and how have yeah. you taken that in your leadership role? Um, so I, I studied as an undergraduate and postgraduate at the University of Oxford in, in the late 70s, very early 80s. Um, and I'm very aware that it was a, a, a very unusual university environment. It was, you know, the teaching was based predominantly on the tutorial method where you'd have maybe two or three students with a tutor for an hour a week, um, coupled with lectures, which were pretty much optional, but um, you got to know pretty quickly who the good lecturers were and which ones you should, really should go to uh, and which ones you, you could avoid. Um, so for me, it was, when it worked, it was absolutely brilliant. Um, as a student to be able to interact even just for an hour a week with very often a, an absolutely brilliant person um brilliant educator um was such a privilege I, I i i was lucky enough to have tutorials in all souls college which wasn't normally an undergraduate college but there was a fellow there called david panic um who was a graduate of my college in the same discipline um, and is now a, a judge in the House of Lords in the UK. Very, very, very smart person and a very distinguished lawyer. Um, and to have an hour a week with him, just talking through some of the things that I really didn't understand in, in, a, in the subject he was teaching was just an extraordinary experience. Um, the same was true to some extent with the postgraduate, although that was taught in a slightly different way in larger seminar groups but um the undergraduate experience was was truly remarkable and um so that, you know when it worked it was brilliant but there were challenges with it um it was pretty much a sink or swim culture there wasn't a lot of support uh for students who were struggling and i struggled in my first couple of semesters um uh, in Oxford, they had a system of exams that you had to do after the first two two terms out of, and it was a term-based system rather than a semester-based system. So after you'd done two terms out of three in your first year, you had to sit some exams. And 
I, I really only just scraped through um, because I'd really been struggling. I really wasn't um, understanding a lot of what uh, I was supposed to be learning. Um, I hadn't really adjusted to the difference from school uh, and there just wasn't a lot of support until in the final term of my first year, um, I encountered a tutor who, again, kind of picked me up um, and was just brilliant, um, helped me find my way, and I ended up topping topping my class in, in the subject he taught. Um, but had he not come along, and there was there was nothing in the system, there was nothing systemic to guarantee that he would. Um, had he not come along, I, th I think I probably would have withdrawn at the end of that first year. Um, so at its best, it was fantastic, um, but there were there were you know gaps in the system that people could easily fall through, um, and and not much uh, opportunity to to spot that and rectify that. I'm sure Oxford has changed. Well, maybe it hasn't changed a lot in the last 40 years, who knows? I have, but I haven't really stayed in touch. But, um, you know, I, I think I probably experienced both the, the best and possibly not the best or the worst um, of, a, of a student experience. But I, I, overall, I know that I was very privileged to, to be able to go um, to the university I did. So with that highly personalised experience, and, and we in Australian higher education, we talk about a personalised experience. It's nothing like that. But did that, that experience put more pressure on you as a student in terms of you had to be really well prepared to your, for your uh, conversation with your tutor every week or, or <laughs> did it put pressure on the tutor or the tutor had done it many times before so they yeah. were just there being the sort of avuncular that, person who a, was pushing you? That's a great question because I, I actually um, experienced the Oxford system from both sides. So because I subsequently became a, a fellow and tutor in the in the college. Um, I think it put a lot of pressure on, on the student, mm -hmm. um, but pressure of a good sort, because you, you knew that you were going to be grilled and there was nowhere to hide. You know, there was, it wasn't a big seminar, so you could sit <laughs> at the back and carefully avoid all the questions. You knew look, that- look down and not be seen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, you knew that your understanding of the subject was going to be fully tested. Um, and I must say, on the other side, as a, as the tutor, um, it was immensely rewarding. Yes, you, you again, you had to, you know, have a clear game plan for each tutorial, but the opportunity to identify where students were struggling um, and really help them through um, was immensely rewarding. Um, and you know, some of my students. And I, I'm not I'm not bragging here, but some of them went on to top their subjects um, in the in the areas in which I taught them. But that was because we established such a good relationship. And it's in, in a massified system. It's really hard to do that. Um, so it, it, it yes, it puts it, it applies pressure, but I think in a good way for both the student and the teacher. Do you think your own experience in struggling made you a better tutor and, and then made you much more student-centered rather than perhaps content and process-centered? Yes, I think, well, I think so. Yeah, I mean, you have to talk to my ex-students, but um, yes, but I think so. the fact they were successful. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Well, it yes, that it it certainly made me appreciate how someone could struggle. Yeah, in, in a way that perhaps someone someone for whom it had all just come very easily might not. Um, but yeah, absolutely, I had a, lo a lot of empathy with with particularly the the the, the students who were finding it tough. Um, but I also enjoyed, if I could see a really smart student, um, then I could work with them uh, to really deepen and hone their understanding. In fact, I remember one student in one tutorial, um, she ended up coming up with an idea for her own publication, which she eventually got accepted. Um, now it's her work, but I, I know that the conversation we had, she was a brilliant student, but the conversation we had encouraged her um, to, to think about preparing this for publication. And it was, as I say, eventually accepted in quite a prestigious law journal. So I, I was, um, yeah, it, it, immensely rewarding in that sense. So what I'm hearing you saying, it's actually a two-way process. What the students mm -hmm. give to you as a tutor, yeah. you can then work on. Absolutely. If, if there isn't that sort of energy and that dynamism, it makes the role of the student difficult and the role of the, 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 the tutor difficult. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Do you, do you think we could get a version of that translated into higher education in Australia or is it the numbers? Um, look, when that's a, that's a great question because I, I don't think it's just an Australian issue. I think, um, as I said at the beginning, one of the most pronounced trends in higher education across the world has been that huge expansion. I mean, yes, there's been an expansion in Australia when you think that after the Second World War, perhaps about 1% of the population went to university. Now it's about 40% of the eligible population. It's just a trans absolute transformation. Um, now, an Oxford system, of course, sits right at the apex. It's a very privileged apex of um, the whole system, but the whole system has below it, you know, much more varied experiences and types of institution. Um, so I think it would be very hard without undreamt of resources being pumped in to be able to replicate precisely that Oxford experience. But if you think about, you know, what, what are the things that I really valued about that? It was the personalized attention. It was the opportunity to identify people who were, who were struggling uh, and to identify the people who are do, doing really well and help them to do even better. I, I think there are ways in which you, you wouldn't do it in exactly the same way, of course, because we don't have the tutorial system, but there are other ways in which we can ident identify those students and, and support them accordingly. So it, it's not the same, but I think we can achieve the same or very similar objectives, but but necessarily by different means, just because of the scale of the system that we're now dealing with. So what what has been important to you and what has driven you as an educator and a leader? Um, well, I think as an educator, um, I hope I've always tried to put the learning of my students um, absolutely central, central to, to, to my practice. It's not just about getting through the material, it's about uh, making sure that 
it's presented to them in a way that will engage them and that they will understand. So for me, that's always been um, paramount. Um, and I like to think that I've taken some of those um, behaviors into my role as a, as a leader as well, because academic staff and professional staff in a university also need to feel that, that they're being heard, they're being seen by the people who lead the organization. Um, so I hope I've tried to apply that in, in my practice as a leader. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I suppose it's hard to separate the educator from the leader within an institution in that mm -hmm. sense. Um, and I, I've been really lucky because about you know half of my 20 year career has been as a teacher and researcher. And then the second half, the latter half has been more as a, as a leader and a manager. Um, and universities are amazing institutions because they enable us to do that. You know, and, and we can have multiple different career paths within a university. It's quite extraordinary. Um, but I, I, th I think being able to apply what you've learned as a teacher to what you your practice as a leader, I, th I think is a, is a unique opportunity in universities. And I, I hope I've been able to do that. What, what opportunities did you um, take advantage of to, to help you develop as 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 an educator but also to develop as a leader yeah um so when, when I first started as an academic there there wasn't anything like the level of support for academic staff in terms of professional development um that there is now and in fact when I came to when I came to Australia there was actually a lot more mm -hmm. than I was used to in the English system um so coming to australia actually really opened my eyes uh to the potential for valuable professional development and just how useful it could be so i, I remember doing one of those basic um uh, professional development subjects on ass assessment you know and the importance of alignment in assess assessment and actually making sure that the things you're testing the students on are the things that you actually want them to learn you know I mean it sounds obvious mm. but no one had ever explained that to me before um, so it, it was doing those sort of basic principles of um, teaching and learning in in higher education that just opened my eyes um, <clears throat> I, I can't say that I was ever particularly an innovator um, but I certainly did my best to assimilate um the the basic principles but I, I think you know looking back now and being being prompted by your questions um I'm thinking that perhaps a, a, a deficit in my own practice has been that that I haven't fully embraced what I've been saying to you myself which is um you know, just appreciate the scale of the change that we've seen. Because I think in my head, for the 20 years or so that I was active in the classroom, and I, I do still occasionally front up to students, but um, in my head, I was thinking, how can I give these students the sort of experience I had myself? Mm -hmm. And it's impossible without running yourself totally into the ground, <laughs> um, without rethinking how you do it, you know? 
what are the alternative ways of achieving that level of um, personalized attention and support, but at a mass scale. And I, I don't think I ever really did that for, for my for my own mm -hmm. practice. And it probably meant that I drove myself into the ground as a teacher more than I possibly needed to have done because I hadn't hadn't thought about what changes we needed to make to deliver that sort of experience at scale. Um, so, so if I'm, uh, yeah, so that, that opportunity to study the, the art or the craft of teaching undergraduate and postgraduate students was revelatory for me. Um, but now that I think about it, I'm not sure that I ever applied my own insight, if you like, about the challenges of, of that personalized experience at scale. There's, there's a fundamental paradox in, in universities that students are the purpose for why, well, students, students are the original purpose to educate the next generation of citizens, but also to educate the next generation of, 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 um, of workers, people who are going to be employed in, in the professions and the like. But the teaching um, is often seen to be secondary to research. And the sort of the golden rewards are provided to the researchers rather than the teachers. But in some universities, that's not the case. Mm. But how do you how do you resolve that tension between research and teaching, where in fact good teachers are preparing the next generation of researchers? Mm. Do you know that that was one of the changes I noted the most in the shift from the UK to Australia was um, just how how much more emphasis there was on research uh, compared to teaching. Um, maybe that's because I'd been in Oxford and, you know, Oxford is a funny place, but really your first loyalty is to your college rather than to your faculty and your college is interested in undergraduate teaching. Um, so coming to Australia, uh, it felt like a new environment where, you know, those metrics around publications and grant money and that seemed to be much more of a driving force than than the quality of teaching I think we've improved a lot um, you know I think we've got better data it's not perfect teaching data is always a proxy for the real thing and we can never really get to the to the real thing but uh, you know I think we've improved a lot um, I, I think universities have come a long way in promoting teaching um, you know, promotion pathways, as you will well know, Judith, we we increasingly try and promote staff on the basis of excellence in teaching. And, you know, a lot of that's been quite successful. Um, we increasingly support staff who want to specialise more in their teaching. I, I, I think that's still a work in progress, but, um, you know, I think the sector as a whole has come quite a long way. Um, I, I think um, membership of things like the, the UK Higher Education Academy, um, mm -hmm. which is certainly something that my own university has promoted. And we now have a, a really strong group of outstanding teachers who've taken that step. And it's it's a great recognition for them of their standing, but, but also um, an opportunity for them to learn from other similarly outstanding educators. Mm -hmm. um, I sometimes think we should do the same thing here, but Maybe we don't need to. Maybe the, the UK version 
is enough. That's probably a topic for another day. So I, I think there's quite a lot that universities have done and can do, um, if they're not already, to promote and support and to value, to make it clear that teaching is really, really highly valued. Um, I think the other thing I noticed when I moved, you know, it is a long time ago, I moved from the UK to Australia in the mid 90s. So it was when Amanda Vanstone was still education minister for, for those historian, historically minded amongst you. Um, the other thing I noticed was just how much administration went with teaching. Um, so, you know, we're, and this was partly because our online stuff was coming, starting to come in. Um, but there did seem to be a lot of um, bureaucracy that, that goes with, whether it's course changes or um, making sure that marks are properly entered, you know, all of those, it just, there just seemed to be a lot of that. Um, perhaps I'd been leading a very privileged existence as a tutor or lecturer in the Oxford system, um, but uh, it, it, it really struck me. So I, I think we always need to find ways to make sure that the burden of teaching administration doesn't fall too heavily on the academics who we rely on to deliver the teaching because it's not what they're best at um, mm. and it can be a bit of a, a grind and a, and a, and a burden um, and probably not the best use of their time so if we could find ways of making you know finding providing better support um, to, to academic teachers um, I think I think that that would be good so I and I know, again, a lot of universities are, are, are trying to do that in various ways, but um, it, we, we, you know, as you say, teaching is often seen as a punishment for not doing well as a researcher. Hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I know that workload models tend to set, thing, set the relationship up in that way. Um, but if we can, we need to try and rethink that. Teaching should be an attractive well-supported and well-rewarded activity for those who do it well. Um, and I, I wouldn't say that my own institution is there yet or that the sector as a whole is there yet, but I think there are some promising signs. So this podcast series is about reimagining higher education. So if you were able to reimagine higher education, where would you start and what would your initial focus be on? Oh, it would be on the, the student experience. Um, and it, it really goes back to what I was saying earlier about how can we understand more what the learnings or the learning needs and the support needs of students are. Um, so that the, the idea of pers more personalized experience, uh, and obviously that's going to increasingly be driven by technology and, and the collection of data and you know there's a lot of that happening already which I'm, I think is fantastic and I think it is a very important way in which we can address the massification of higher education without reducing the quality of the student experience um, so I, I, I think if we're talking about reimagining I think um, reimagining reimagining it as 
certainly a more diverse experience, but also one in which students feel heard in the system and, and, and their needs responded to. I, th I think that is so important because the massified university, there is a risk that it appears as a, an unsympathetic one size fits all monolith. Um, and that is just so far away from the lived reality of our students. You know, as the sector has grown bigger, um, a much more varied cohort of students has been drawn into it um, with mu a much more varied range of support needs. Mm. Um, you know, my university has a big regional footprint and we know that the vast majority of our students at our regional campuses um, are not school leavers. They're, it's a terrible term, but they, they fall into that mature age category, which means that they're not fresh out of school. Um, and their support needs are extraordinarily diverse. Mm -hmm. um, most of them are in equity groups of one sort or another. So being able to manage that diversity and respond to it, um, I think has to be a core mission of a modern university system. There are some universities that really don't need to bother with all of that. They can continue just to address their elite school leaver cohort. That's what they're good at. That's where they get their reputation from. But the, the rest of us, I think, will have to will have to really give careful thought to how we address that diversity. But in some some regards, government policy about measuring and, and I, I can understand the need to be accountable and transparent because this is taxpayers' money, um, has led to a sort of a vocationalization of higher education. So it's people getting degrees that will ensure that they get a job. And by getting a job, that seemed to be a measure of the value of higher education. Mm. Does that need to be revisited? Um, look, at, uh, one of the reasons why governments have been prepared to invest in higher education, um, I'm, I'm not saying that they invest enough, but in the long run from say the post-war up until now, um, there has been a huge increase in government investment. It's tailed off in Australia, it's plateaued and it's probably going down at the moment. But, um, but part of the case for that investment has been necessarily around uh, a, the need for a skilled workforce and an educated workforce. Um, and that's been quite explicit. Um, you know, if you look at the, the projections for jobs in the economy, um, the National Skills Commission projects that over 50% of the jobs that will be created in Australia over the next five years um, will require a degree or higher. So there is clearly just a compelling economic need um, for universities to help address that challenge. Um, and I think the, the case that universities make to government will always have to depend to some extent on that as part of the, the, the case for support, because mm -hmm. it's what governments will listen to. Um, so there's an, an element of pragmatism, I think, in that narrative. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that when we actually teach the students that the content has to be entirely vocational. Um, 
uh, and that we should abandon the goal of ensuring that our students at the same time as picking up a useful professional qualification or a skill um, are also being encouraged and supported to become broad-minded critical thinkers um, able to question uh, to, to manage lots of information um, and to think laterally i mean th those are all the positive non-vocational skills that we laud in our graduate capability statements and all of those things um, and I, I think that is and should remain a really important part of what universities do otherwise how are we differentiated from a vocational training sector um, and I, i'd say there are two things that differentiate us one is the connection between the teaching and research we do and the other is is that we aim to do more than just train people um, uh, I'm, I'm trying to someone once described the difference as a difference between um, sex education and sex training <laughs> and that we <laughs> that we might be happy with the idea of sex education but we may not be happy with the idea of sex training and it's it's the education bit that that universities undertake and um, and I, I think that is an important difference between the two, the objectives of the two kinds of education and universities have to cling on to that because otherwise we just become sex trainers, um, which is a sort of not probably what you'd want to expose your, your, your young children to. Um, so I think there has to be an element of pragmatism in how we appeal to government, but in the end, how we teach what we teach within limits obviously of professional accreditation requirements and texa requirements and so on does remain under our control we are autonomous institutions still and we should make use of it so i've got two more questions to ask um you've uh, been um chair of avcc which was interesting challenging and extending now, now yeah. universities australia judith Oh, sorry. Yes, Universities Australia. I, yes. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Had a rebrand in uh, a yeah, long ago. probably yeah. fifteen years ago. <laughs> Universities <laughs> Australia. Um, yeah. But do you? Um, what what insights do you have about what the, the the short term challenges of higher education will be in Australia? Uh, um. Well, uh, there are, there are many. Um, but I think what sits behind them is um, how willing is government to invest in its higher education system? How do we strike the balance between what government provides and what we ask, say, the students to provide through their own contributions or through fees, according to, you know, depending on which case it is? Um, and how much do we expect universities themselves to contribute through improved productivity? Now, over the years, I think the pattern has been perhaps up until about 2017, um, that government showed an appetite to increase its investment because it saw the, the need for and the advantages of a higher proportion of degree educated people in the population. So that that was really given a big kick along by the Bradley Review and the demand-driven system that led to a huge expansion in the system. 
Um, but since then, since 2017, when the cap was put back on, the demand-driven system brought to an end, um, you know, there's really been a sort of casting around for a solution to this dilemma or trilemma even of how do you distribute the costs? Everyone agrees that we want a large, successful, good quality higher education system, but how do you pay for it? Um, and in particular, how do you strike that, that balance between the three ingredients I mentioned? I, I don't still don't think we have a good answer to that. I think the job ready graduate scheme with which we're now operating um, was an attempt uh, to make the whole thing a bit more sustainable, both, well, sustainable to government. It actually levies a 15% cut in what government contributes by way of the Commonwealth grant scheme, shifts a significant proportion of that burden to students, um, and in fact, vastly increases the student contribution in some disciplines. Um, and I think there is now a consensus that it, it's an unfair system, um, partly because of that inequity between what students are expected to pay, um, and partly because it isn't achieving the employment objectives that the government hoped it would, namely encourage students into some disciplines over others. Um, so I think that's a big question. How do we design a, a fair and equitable uh, student contribution scheme that promotes accessibility, um, recognizes the public good in having uh, a well-educated population, but also seeks fairly um, to, to our students to contribute to that. I don't think we've landed on, a, on the right answer yet for that. Um, of course, there are, there are a heap of other questions to do with international students and um, you know, how historically that's really been used by Australian universities to make up for um, deficiencies in government support for the sector, particularly around research. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, you know, that may distort uh, some aspects of the system, and I think that has to be rethought. Um, and, and then there's the whole question of how the sector is governed. I mean, at the moment we have a, a TEXA, um, a regulator, um, uh, but that's really the only body that sits across the whole system. Um, actually plays a very important role, um, but in a sense has quite a limited remit. It, it's, it's there to ensure quality. It's about, you know, uh, overseeing accreditation of institutions. Um, but there's potential for so, for so much more, ben I think that would be beneficial for the sector for an overarching regulatory body to achieve if it was given the mandate to do that. So I think there are some big questions and the, the, the accord process that the minister will announce and probably kick off between now and the end of the year is gonna be absolutely vital. Um, for us, for our future, because it's the biggest opportunity we've had since 20, 2008, the Bradley Review, really to have a comprehensive look at how all of this works and how it all interacts. Um, so I think we're on the brink of a, a very interesting period, but some of the dilemmas and contradictions of the system as it's operated 
for the last 10 or 20 years uh, are, are really, I think, have been exposed by the pandemic. Um, and I don't think we can any longer just put, push them under the carpet. You know, I, th I think there are some big questions that we have to confront now. Head on. So with, with a new government, a new minister, are there different conversations that are happening and new opportunities that will emerge? Yes, I think so. I mean, the, the minister um, has a very different style to, to his predecessors. Um, he's very committed to promoting access and equity in the system. He's made that very clear on a number of occasions. I don't think we've had a minister um, who's been quite as focused on that aspect of the system as our current minister is. Um, he's a very good listener um, and actually acts on the things he hears. Um, so a number of initiatives have begun since he took over um, and a lot of those were based on advice he received from the sector. Um, so for example, I think the, the review of the Australian Research Council mm -hmm. um, very much driven by him, but responding to concerns that he was picking up from across the sector about how that system is working. And you know, the ARC has been around for long enough now that it is timely to do a review, but you know, the, the new minister um, was willing to act on that. So yeah, I, th I think the atmospherics are very different. Um, the, there still isn't gonna be a lot of money uh, at least for the next year or 18 months. So, you know, we, we might have to wait um, a little bit to see any additional investment. Um, but I think that's one reason why the accord process has been timed to conclude towards the end of next year. Um, so that it, if there is to be additional investment back in the system, um, it, it can be picked up in 2024 or 25. So it's going to, this is going to be a long process. We won't see, I don't think, significant budgetary investment from government in next year's budget because the, the accord process won't have concluded. Um, so I, I'm reasonably optimistic um, that the, the government does value the higher education system Obviously, it also values the training system, and quite rightly, and that's been a big, really big focus for them. Um, and I, I should have said, Judith, that I think one of the other big issues we have to confront is how do we better integrate the two? You know, there are, it, it's an historical uh, and almost legal distinction between the two, barring some interesting dual sector institutions dotted around the country, mostly in Victoria. Um, but how do we achieve better integration from a student-centered point of view um, to, to post-secondary schooling. So I think that's gonna be another big issue that the Accord will have to pick up. And I think the government, the, the federal government will be very interested in that too. So sorry, that's a bit of a ragbag, Judith, but no, no, I, I think that the, the task is significant, but I think we have a minister who's up for it. So there's a, a, a level of optimism. I'm Yes, I'm certainly feeling optimistic. Um, certainly more optimistic than I have probably for the last eight or nine years, um, where it's been, it's been pretty gloomy for the sector by and large, except in international recruitment, but of course that was exposed cruelly during the pandemic. Indeed. So this is the last question. <laughs> what, what advice would you give to your younger self 
And what would you say to aspiring senior leaders in the sector? Um, I think the one piece of advice I would give is one that was given me when I first took over um, as Dean of the Law School at Griffith um, back in about 2000. Um, so really, it was my first step in, in what I wasn't to know then, but subsequently became quite a long-term management and leadership career. Um, and it was given to be my, by Margaret Gardner, who was then my boss um, at Griffith, and now obviously very distinguished Vice-Chancellor of Monash and previously of RMIT. And she just said, look, there is no single right way of being a leader. Everyone brings their own strengths to a leadership role. Don't feel that you have to emulate anyone else. Just be yourself as a leader. And if when she said that, it felt like this whole weight fell off my shoulders. <laughs> um, obviously, you want to be effective as a leader. Um, and that's, you know, you can measure that in all kinds of ways. But there is no single path to effectiveness. I think that was the it was such a relief when she said that. Um, and I've, I've kind of played that back in my head ever since. Um, so the, yeah, that, that's the advice I would give. Um, just don't, don't feel that there's a leadership template that you have to conform to. Um, bring your own personality, your own strengths, and you know, understand your own weaknesses and compensate for them as you, as you need to. Um, so I, I think that would be my single most, I hope, it's certainly been valuable for me, valuable piece of advice. John, thank you for giving me 45 minutes of your very precious time. I've enjoyed the conversation. I hope that you've enjoyed the conversation and keep doing the great work that you're doing towards making Australian education uh, excellent and for um, helping us to reimagine what that might look like. Thank you, Judith. It's been an absolute pleasure. Great to see you again. Likewise. Bye. See ya. Visit studiosity.com slash students first for the next Students First Symposium, an open forum for faculty, staff and academics to candidly discuss and progress the issues that matter most in higher education. Studiosity.com slash students first.